right. Good morning, everyone. I want everybody to know that, as Devin already pointed out, I'm not Pastor Dan. I'm not even close. But the idea is that I'm here this morning by the grace of God, and I pray that the words that are spoken are spoken his words, not mine, and that we'll fall on open hearts. The one thing that's really peculiar has always happened. <clears throat> Somebody this morning before we started came up to me and he said, I brought a friend of mine to church today for the second time, and it's the second time that Pastor Dan hasn't been here. So how does that make me feel? You know, I'm the, I'm the replacement, I'm the filling guy, so sorry, I can't help it. This, this is what you get today, okay? All right. But we're talking about this series, and I'm so excited about Pastor Dan and this series that he started. And when I heard about it, that I was going to be able to do chapter two, I was really excited because this is good stuff. And the neat thing about it is that we're moving onward. We're moving forward as a church. And this is a great story that, Josh, that the book of Joshua chapter two has. And what, what Pastor Dan brought last week, it was exciting. I think everyone can tell it was here that they could see the power of the Holy Spirit just speaking through him. And that's what I feel that, that God will do again today. And the thing is that we are, again, as a church, we have so many things that we can learn from the Old Testament. So many people get involved in the New Testament, they never take time to read the Old Testament. Well, that's why it's so great that he's doing this whole series on the book of Joshua. How many people really read that book? It's Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 to 24. And the title of the message is, when he told me what it was, he gave the, me the message title. I didn't even get that. But he says, it's called Two Spies and a Shady Lady. I think that's a great title. So I said, I'm not changing a thing. He said, we want to change it. Go ahead. But I said, no, that's perfect. But before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, again, we just thank you for this day. And we thank you for this opportunity to, to just speak your word. Lord, it's never me that's speaking. It's always that you speak through me. I'm just a vessel, the voice, the person up here, but you do the speaking. Father, just use me now this morning as to speak to these open hearts. Lord, that your name will be glorified and we'll take something with us today that we can really change our lives and help others to see what you are teaching us each and every week, why we're here to learn and grow together. Lord, so again, we say thank you. We praise you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, whenever we talk about great men of the Bible, we always think of names such as Abraham, Moses, David, Peter, and Paul. Immediately, they come right into mind. You can put your, you just know who they are right away. Even if you're not a Bible, Bible reader that often, but you know those names. Whenever we talk about great women, I think of Sarah, Ruth, Esther, Mary, and Martha. The great stories that we learn and know about them and what their, their, their whole ministry was about and what they were here for. Now perhaps it's time that has come to, to add one name to this list of famous females. And her name is Rahab. Now there's a lot of people who might have a problem with my suggestion of putting her name up there with those great females of the Old Testament. Given what we know of Rahab's occupation. She was a prostitute. Can you say that in church? 
Can we say that word in church, prostitute? Everybody looks and says, oh, what did he say? Yeah, he can't say that in church. Well, if the Bible can say it, I think it's okay, all right? So it says it very clear that she was a prostitute. How then dare I suggest that she be included in the same breath with such, you know, righteous women as Ruth and Mary? Well, the answer is found in Joshua chapter 2. Now, we're getting into the whole story here. And Jericho was the formidable obstacle to the conquest of Canaan. We all have heard of the, you know, the different songs and we learned in Sunday school about the, the, the walls of Jericho and all that sort of thing. But it was a, a walled city in an open valley and was defended by a vicious and violent people called the Amorites. So these people were really something to fear. So Joshua, he, he dispatched two spies to obtain information on how best to attack the city. They disguised themselves, and not very successfully, as we'll soon discover, and approached with great caution. Since the Jordan River was of, at flood stage, I have a map up here, just to give you an idea how they went. It was at flood stage, they probably traveled to the north where the, the, the fords were easier, and then turned southwest to enter Jericho from the west side. And we also see a reason why that was why they w went that way. Why was the floods that way? Why was it at that time that they would come from that angle? Because of who they were going to meet. It was all a part of God's plan, how he planned things out, that they would meet Rahab. So Joshua's decision to send only two spies was no doubt due to his personal experience 38 years before, if you remember the story. You may recall that he and Caleb were among the the 12 spies that Moses sent to Canaan to scout out the land and the people. Now, perhaps recalling the near disaster that came when 10 of those spies brought back, an, back a negative report, he selects two men of whom he is very confident. So he learned from his, from his past. So that's why he sent the men that he could be confident in. Now, some have wondered, why Joseph sent spies in the first place? This doesn't sound like a guy of great faith, does it? After all, if God has already assured Joshua of certain victory, and if Joshua is truly a man of faith who banks on the truth of God's word, what need is there to send in spies to search out the land? It makes sense if you think about it logically. But also it's this way too. Some, some have founded in this a profound lapse of or a failure of faith for, for Joshua. I don't think so, and we're going to get into that right now, because the sovereignty of God and the certainty of his promises coming to pass do not negate the importance of wisdom and prudence on our part. Just because God has decreed that something will certainly occur does not mean we are free to act like fools and then throw caution to the wind as so many people think that they could do. They think that God will take care of it. I can do whatever I want. He's going to make it all work out. No, someone who uses their, their head will not do that. Joshua knows that God wants him to take advantage of ordinary means to achieve extraordinary ends. Let me say that again. Joshua knows that God wants him to take advantage of ordinary means to achieve extraordinary ends. 
In other words, Joshua clearly doesn't expect God to simply hand over the land and all its inhabitants in one fell swoop without strategic planning or battle or any human involvement at all. Joshua is simply active or acting with wisdom and preparation, confident that if he will utilize every means available to him, that God will fulfill his promise as stated. We always got to do the best we can. We do the work. We bring the glory to him, and then he'll do the miracles. That's a, a song that's, that's out, and I love that the words of that song, and that's exactly what it is, that he, we have to do everything we can to make sure that we can get everything in place. We just don't say, God, you do it, and I can do whatever I want. Think of it this way. According to Psalm 139, every day that you will live on this earth has already been written down in God's book before you were even born. It says, in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. That's verse 16. <clears throat> I really believe that with all my heart. But that doesn't mean I will no longer look both ways before crossing a busy street. How dumb would that be? You know, I trust in God. I just walk out there and like that, you know, and boom, what happens? You can't just do that. That doesn't mean I will neglect my health. Well, I can eat anything I want. I can do whatever I want or jump out of an airplane without a parachute. You can't do that. God expects us to use our mind and common sense. That's a little, you know, rough for some of us to do. You know, some of the people I think, do they really use common sense anymore? It's a, it's a, it's a lost art, if you want to put it that way. And take careful and strategic steps to achieve the goals that lie before us. That's what God wants us to do. And that's what, what Joshua did. Now, again, I'm going to say it again. Rahab was a prostitute, a harlot. Twice in the New Testament, in Hebrews and James, we'll get into later, she is called a prostitute. It's entirely possible she was one of the countless uh, sacred prostitutes who, you know, served at the Canaanite fertility shrine. That's where she probably was. For her house was probably an inn or a tavern, a popular gathering place that would likely prove to be a place, a great place to gather information. You know, you can always, they always say, go to a, a bar room. You want to find anything out, talk to the bartender. He knows everything that's going on in the neighborhood or the city or wherever you're at. So that's probably what, what, they, what this was like. Now, some argue that it was, in fact, a brothel, that that's what this whole place was, and that was not a place you wanted to go to. You wouldn't want to send your kids in there. In any case, it would have been frequented by traveling merchants, out-of-town visitors to Jericho, and countless others went to this place where she was at. It was a great place to get lost in the crowd, to disappear undetected in the sea of strange faces. That's what a lot of people like to do. They like to just go where they can just hide. There's a lot of people who go to a huge, these huge, huge churches. Why do they go there? Because they can go in and hide. They can just you know, glean whatever they can out of it and then quick get out of there because no one notices them. That's what these people, that's what this kind of a place was that, that, this, that they could go to and no one would know who they are and what they're doing at this type of a place. Now, we don't know how it happened, but their cover was exposed. Like I said earlier, they didn't disguise themselves too great, I don't think. So someone learned of their identity and purpose in Jericho and immediately reported to the king from verse 2. 
commanded that Rahab bring them out in the open in verse 3. Now, Rahab proceeds to tell one heck of a story, and we're going to get into that right now. To put it bluntly, it's all a fib, a lie, a complete fabrication on her part designed to deceive the king and the soldiers he had sent to capture the, the, the spies. Now, verses 4 to 7, if you follow, follow along on the screen, it should be up there or in your Bibles. <clears throat> and it says, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gates, the men left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Now, it's rather strange that the soldiers would so quickly believe Rahab's story and never bother to search her house. Doesn't that kind of make sense that why would they just take this woman who was not in the upper class of, of society and she says this and they automatically just go out and don't even search the house? Maybe we can simply attribute the, the, it, it to divine providence or to God's decision to blind their eyes and dull their minds. Now, it's not hard to think of the first Star Wars episodes. You remember, Star, if, if you watch the whole bunch of Star Wars movies, where the Jedi at the time, Obi-Wan Kenobi, that he, uh, he had this mind that he could, you know, a, a superior mind that he could tell lesser minded people that what to do and sometimes had that influence over them. And Obi-Wan Kenobi says, these aren't the droids you're looking for. Move along. They repeated and, and moved along. They didn't even question it. But I like a better and more spiritual analogy would be the experience of Brother Andrew. Have you heard about Brother Andrew during the, <coughs> the communist, uh, when the communism had the, the, the Great Wall up there and, and the Iron Curtain and all that thing? He, he would regularly smuggle Bibles into these Iron Curtain countries before the fall of communism. He would leave Bibles sitting openly in the back seat of his car. He wasn't allowed to do this. He wasn't allowed to bring Bibles in. But he had them in the back seat of his car in broad daylight, could see it easily, and the soldiers regularly looked, but evidently saw nothing. That is truly amazing when you think about it. I've heard it over the years, and, and that is really a really great gift to God that he can do sometimes. So Rahab's lie was actually comprised of, of, of several, yeah, that, that, you know, actually comprised of several things that, First of all, she said she didn't know they were Israelites. I did not know where they were from. Secondly, she said they had already gone. And third, she said she didn't know where they could be found. And four, the, she misled the soldiers into thinking that if they quickly pursued them, they would easily be caught. Now we have to pause here and address the complicated question of whether or not Rahab was justified in lying as she did. Some simply point out that we need to distinguish between what the Bible reports and what it recommends, or between what it records and what it requires. Now this is the difference between descriptive text and prescriptive text. 
A good example of this is found in the, the book of Job, where the words of his counselors are reported and recorded, but are by no means approved or endorsed. Their theology was bad, and their counsel was misguided. So perhaps we should simply take this as an, another example of the Bible recording her actions, but not necessarily approving them. Okay, so you can see where we're going with this now. Because you have to listen to the whole message to see where, what, what this whole book is about. Before we go any further, let's be sure we take note of the importance the Bible places on truth-telling. I'm going to put a, bu- a bunch of scriptures up on the screen, so follow along. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That's pretty clear. Satan is a liar and the father of lies. Ananias and Sapphira were judged because they lied to the Holy Spirit. (coughs) Do not lie to one another. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Among those consigned to the eternal lake of fire are all liars, as well as everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now, needless to say, this is a matter of great importance for the ethical conduct of every believer. So how do we address the matter of Rahab's lies? In her case, it appears that two absolute moral principles have come into conflict. First, it is wrong to tell a lie. Okay, we know that. Secondly, it is essential that we protect human life. Makes sense, right? So typically, people align themselves with one of three possible positions. The first one is conflicting absolutionism, or the lesser of two evils approach. According to this view, sometimes two or more absolute principles will conflict, and there is simply no way to avoid sinning. One must choose the lesser of two evils. In this case, lying is a sin, but it is a less evil than allowing the spies to be killed. So Rahab was wrong to lie, but she would also have been wrong to tell the truth. It was impossible for her to avoid sinning, so she simply chose the lesser of two evils and to throw herself on the mercy of God. Now that's the first one. The second is greater absolutism. On this view, there is an ordered hierarchy of moral values in which some have priority over others. When one cannot avoid making a choice, one should choose the higher of the two. In doing so, the other choice is no longer regarded as sinful. Rahab was exempt from telling the truth in order to save the lives of the two Israeli spies. So she communicated in in a series of falsehoods, but did not sin in doing so. And number thir- three is non-conflicting absolutism. This is the view which says that it only seems or appears to be the case that two moral absolutes conflict. In reality, they don't. In such situations, there will always be a third way or another option that does not entail committing a sin. In Rahab's case, she should have she, she should not have lied, but should have trusted God to provide for her a way to protect the spies that didn't involve sinning. On this view, Rahab was right to have hidden the spies, 
but you could then have refused to respond to the king or to have answered the question concerning their whereabouts. He could have said, come in my house and look around, all the while praying that God would conceal their location from those searching for them. Now, I don't know which one fits in you, what you think uh, would, would fit you better in your thinking, but I kind of go with number with the second one. That's kind of where I kind of lean a little bit that way. Now, we must remember that communication of truth or falsehood can also be nonverbal through our conduct or our actions. So, for example, I'll think about this for a minute, and, and maybe you've done this. I want you to really think about it. Is it ethical for a Christian to post a beware of the dog sign on your fence or door to deter a burglar even when you don't own a dog? Think about that. I know people that have done that. Have you ever done that? I'm not, don't raise hands. I don't want to see. But think about that. Another one, is it ethical for a Christian to give the impression that one is at home by leaving on the light, again, to frighten off would-be intruders or thieves? Have you ever done that? Is that an ethical thing to do? Is it ethical for a woman, when attacked by a rapist, to, take, to fake a heart attack or to pretend to, to faint or to call out to her husband as if he were close by when in fact he is not. See where we're going with this? So think about it. Think, really think about this. Now when the Allies in World War II, were they, were they justified in deceiving Hitler concerning the, the location of the Normandy invasion? Should we, should, should they have told Hitler ahead of time what they were doing? like maybe one of our former presidents, that he would let the enemy know exactly when they were going to bomb them so they could get out of the way, I think. We don't do that sort of thing. We don't do that. You don't warn them ahead of time. Is it ethical for the, for the police to operate radar in unmarked cars? There's a lot of people who are against that. I know Rose, my wife, she's definitely against that. <coughs> we won't go into that, will we? Okay. Is it ethical for the police to conduct conduct undercover plainclothes investigations which by definition demand that they deceive people concerning their identity and intent. Well you can't do that sort of thing. That's not fair. They're not they're 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 hiding. They're not even they're in plain clothes. You can't do that. Is it ethical for those in the military to wear camouflage uniforms in order to mislead their enemies concerning their location? I don't think it's a bad idea. Now, let's add to those examples the biblical case of the Hebrew midwives. Remember that? When they misled Pharaoh when he demanded that they kill any newborn male babies. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. That's Exodus chapter 1, 17 to 21. Now when it comes to Rahab, we must reckon with two references to her in the New Testament, which we talked about earlier. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, 
did not curse with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. That's Hebrews 11.31. In James 2.25, the author cites Rahab as an example of someone whose work proved the reality of her faith when she received the messengers, the spies, and sent them out by another way. Now, Rahab is praised for welcoming the spies into her home and for sending them out safely and away from the men who sought their lives. This was accomplished through verbal deceit. Now, how could the New Testament officers speak of her in this way, praising her faith? If they believed her guilty of the sin of lying, it just doesn't make sense if you look at it that way. How could they praise her for a goal she attained through illicit and unethical means? My point is this. There are occasions when deception is morally permissible. Not all falsehoods are lies. A lie is an intentional falsehood which violates someone's right to know the truth. But there are instances in which men forfeit their right to know the truth. A lie is the intentional declaration or communication of a falsehood designed to deceive someone who has a moral and legal right to know the truth. A lie is the telling of an untruth to someone to whom we are morally and legally obligated to speak the truth. And there do appear to be instances when we are not under obligation to tell a person the truth in times of war. There's times of war you ha- cannot tell the truth. On these occasions when someone when has, has criminal intent or when a person's life is at stake. Because of his intent to break into my home and steal what does not belong to him. A thief has forfeited his right to know whether or not I'm in the house. Does that make sense? He forfeits that right. I can do what I can do whatever I can to think that I am not there so that I can take care of the situation before he steals everything. I won't just sit there and let him steal that my, my everything I have in that house. So I have the right to to make it look like I'm not home because I know he shouldn't be in there. He's forfeiting his right. To tell the truth. By their unjustified aggression, enemies of the state forfeit the right to know the way in which our military forces intend to defeat them. And I could go on and on with different examples. But this does not mean we should become careless. Again, don't get me wrong. Don't be, we can't become careless or flippant when it comes to telling the truth. That would be the unbelievable. We can't just do that. And, and right away people think, well, that's true. I can say whatever I want. I can lie whenever I want. No, that's not what God's saying. We are people of the truth. We must be people of integrity, honesty, forthrightness, and purity. That's what God wants us to be. To everyone who is morally and legally entitled to hear the truth, we must tell it. But we're the But were the soldiers sent by the king of Jericho entitled to know where Rahab and had hid the spies, given the fact that their intent was to kill them? In my opinion, no. You have to be, you have to really think about this. And when I was doing this message, I went over and over and over so many times, and I was thinking about different things. 
you have to be really be careful of what we where we tell the truth and we we are commanded by God to tell the truth but there are instances where we have to be careful and Rahab was in that situation now getting back to Joshua chapter 2 picking up the narrative with verses 8 to 11 let's follow along it says before the spies lay down for the night he went up on the roof and said to them I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for when, for, for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og, the, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now the Canaanites were polytheists, and they worshipped a variety of gods. They didn't believe in just one god. They believed in all kinds of gods. Yet Rahab affirms that Yahweh alone is God and rules over all. When she said, the Lord your God, he is God, she is saying, no, in no uncertain terms, he is the only God. Clearly, Rahab was saying this for a reason other than merely to save her skin and the, 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 that of her family. She was saying, our people worship dozens of gods, but your God alone is the one true God. Also, her words, in the heavens above and on the earth beneath, are used only three other times in the Old, Old Testament, all in context that affirm Yahweh's exclusive claim to sovereignty. Exodus 20, verse 4, and Deuteronomy 4, 39, and 5, 8. It's stunning that this Canaanite woman not only knows Israel's God by name, Yahweh, but also knows his plans for her homeland. How did Rahab come by this knowledge? Perhaps she's picked up bits and pieces of who God, you know, who God had, what God had done for travel, from traveling uh, customers. She knew a lot that was going on. She evidently had heard of the exodus out of Egypt, some of the the miracles, perhaps even of the giving of the Ten Commandments. Did she notice a difference in the Jewish spies? Perhaps for the fact that unlike most others who came to her place of business, they were not there for immoral purposes. That had to be strange for her. This is altogether different why the men were coming to her place, to the, her establishment of business. They were coming for other reasons. But these Israeli spies did not come for that reason. They had other reasons for coming. Some are also befuddled by verses 12 to 21 and the agreement that is reached between Rahab and the spies. They point out that God had clearly forbidden his people from making any sort of treaty with the Canaanites. Deuteronomy 7 and 20. Yes, but Rahab's confession of faith is that we know she had ceased to be a Canaanite and had chosen to unite herself with the Israelites and the one true God. Let's read that. <clears throat> now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. <clears throat> Our lives for your lives, the men answered her. If you don't tell me 
If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. See why they, why God had them come in from that angle? This is the side of the, the wall that Rahab was on. She said to them, go to the hills for the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves for three days until they return and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land, you have tied the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house, if any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the, from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. <clears throat> now what of this scarlet cord that she placed in the window of her home? To indicate the place of, you know, of those who were to be spared. Was it a symbol or a type of the, the shed blood of Christ? Probably not. Because there is no reference to this anywhere else in the Old or the New Testament. However, there may be some spiritual significance in this scarlet cord as seen from two similar instances in the Old Testament. First of all, the same words are used in Genesis chapter 38, verses 28 to 30, where Tamar is said to have tied a scarlet cord around the wrist of one of her twin sons, Zerah, who in fact was one of the ancestors of Jesus, from Matthew 1, 3. Tamar and Rahab are linked as being two of the four foreign women listed in the genealogy of Jesus. Both Tamar and Rahab were prostitutes. And both were in possession of a scarlet cord that served to secure their place in the genealogy of our Lord. Number two, there may be a connection with the Passover in Exodus 12. The Israelites were protected in their homes if the blood of the lamb was posted on, it was, was painted on the doorpost. Likewise, the scarlet cord at the home of Rahab was a sign that God's judgment would pass over that household. Now, the greatest lesson for us in this remarkable story isn't whether or not it is ever permissible to lie. The most important thing for us to see is that God's saving grace can extend beyond the borders of Israel into the depths of the worst of human sin and depravity and save even the most vile of sinners. Consider what Paul said of the Gentiles during the time of the Old Testament. They were separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and were without God in the world. All this was true of Rahab before the arrival of spies in her home. What we see in Joshua 2 is that even before the coming of Christ, God's saving grace extended into the Gentile world to redeem the worst of sinners. Reflect on everything that Rahab had going against her as an outsider. First of all, she was a Canaanite, 
a Gentile by birth, a foreigner to the covenant of promise. Secondly, she was a woman in a man's world, vulnerable and without rights, unmarried and childless. Three, she was a prostitute, hence a social outcast, possibly a madam running her own brothel. And fourth, she was a polytheist, a worshiper of countless worthless and lifeless idols. Yet she is saved. How then should we look upon and treat outsiders like Rahab? First, we must recognize that God works in mysterious ways that we can't always fathom. God is of God, and he's only has to be God. If we'd understand him for everything he does, what kind of a God would he be? He is a God with, he has mysterious ways we don't understand. We can't even fathom some of the things he does. Clearly, he had revealed himself to Rahab apart from the expected means. What she knew about Yahweh would have been useless had it not been for the Holy Spirit giving her eyes to, to see and a heart broken with repentance. Number two, we must work hard at getting past first impressions. That's one thing we as human beings do. We look at people right away, and right away we form an impression upon them. We don't even know them, but we form this impression of them. Rahab would likely have proven offensive to the eyes and the moral convictions of the spies. They looked at her. What would they have thought they would see? This is a, a, a harlot, a prostitute. Their instinctive reaction would have been to distance themselves from someone so immoral and pagan. Yet they saw in her the evidence of God's spirit at work. Number three, be open to the possibility that such people have not yet arrived at their final spiritual destination, but are in fact somewhere on the way to their spiritual journey. It would be all too easy to conclude that God had already abandoned a woman like Rahab, all too easy to write her off as a reprobate for whom there was no hope. We must never conclude that someone is utterly beyond the possibility of salvation. No one is beyond the, the, the possibility of salvation. That we can never judge someone and say, well, that person is so far gone that they cannot be saved. We can never look at anybody like that. We have to always look at everyone that Jesus Christ can save anyone. I don't care what their past was like. I don't care what they did in their life. That Jesus Christ's blood can wash away every sin that they ever committed. He did it for me and he can do it. He's done it for you. And he did it for Rahab. It's easy for us to conclude that someone like Rahab was too far gone, that her chronic immorality had thoroughly blinded her to the beauty of God. Reflect on the effect of her in her soul of repeated sexual encounters with total strangers. If we had known Rahab and were familiar with her lifestyle and her religious beliefs, would you and I have even bothered to take the risk and invest the time to speak to her of redemption and forgiveness and the grace of God? Think about that a minute. Would you, if you saw, knew this, this person like this? Yet God was at work in her heart. Long before the two Israeli spies showed up, God was sovereignly softening her heart, speaking to her, revealing himself to her mind and spirit, awakening her to his existence and power and holiness. Regardless of what your life has been up until this very moment, regardless of how you have strayed or how deep you've immersed yourself in immorality and rebellion and selfish self-indulgence, the Lord God of Israel, the one true God, calls upon you to come to him. 
He wants all to come to him. He went to that cross for every single human being, not just the ones who lived a good life, not the ones who were, who were on this side of the tracks. God went, Jesus Christ went to that cross, and he rose again, which we have up here. He is risen, and he's risen indeed, and he is definitely working today that no one is not worthy. Everyone is worthy. He redeemed the heart of it like Rahab, and it orchestrated history in such a way that Jesus himself descended directly from her. I don't know if you knew this or not, if you really got into genealogies, but that, if that seemed even possible. Rahab, the prostitute, was the great-great-grandmother of King David, from whom Jesus descended according to the flesh. Now that's amazing grace. If you really think about that, the miracle that took place from a prostitute to being in the family of God by the, being the great-great-grandmother of King David, who also the Messiah came out of. It's time the church wakes up and gets their heads out of the past with their little groups of families that have been in the church since its beginning. I've seen too many churches where, well, this is, this is our church, this is my church. It's nobody's church, it's God's church. My parents and grandparents and great-grandparents went to this church and we're the only ones who are worthy to head this church. We have our own little groups that have grown up together. We live our sheltered little lives in our little church. We don't go out into the world. We just stay huddled in our little behind these walls. We never smoked or drank or did drugs or we have the perfect marriages, the perfect children, and the only ones worthy of leading our church. But then Rahab comes through the doors of the church. Right now those doors could open and Rahab could come through those doors. And Jesus Christ has done a miracle in her life and she is a new creation in Jesus Christ. Remember when you accept Jesus Christ, all your past is gone. All your sins are gone. You all are dead and gone and you're a new creation in Jesus Christ. And she wants to be used of God in the church and all we can say is we are so glad what Christ has done for you. But your past does not allow us to let you be a part of, of anything in our, in our church. You don't have the right background, so you can't be used in this church. The truth of the matter is that that's the perfect person to be used of God. They have the experience to truly help someone who is struggling with drugs and alcohol or divorce. They have been through it and can help someone else by showing what God can do in their lives, just like he did for Rahab in Joshua chapter 2. If Jesus' Messiah can come out of the genealogy of a prostitute, just think what the church would become when we wake up to the truth that God can take a miserable sinner like me and you. So matter, no matter what our past is like and can make this church into a shining example of people who are perfect, who are not perfect in our own little family of believers, but a church who is filled with the sinners who are saved by the grace of God and working as brothers and sisters in Christ. Rahab had a, part, a past of sin, but was saved, and look how she was used by God. Never look at anybody and say, well, you can't do this, you can't do that. Sure, you've sinned, but by the grace of God, he has forgiven you. So why can't we be used in a mighty way? There is everyone, no one in this building or any church can say, well, I am such a good person, I can do this, I can do that, but you can't because of your past. I'll tell you right now, there's not a single person in this building or any building that can say, I get to heaven because of how good I live my life. 
That's the last thing we have because it's just filthy rags compared to what Jesus Christ did for us. We have to just ask for forgiveness and see that the past we live should not hold anybody back from being used of God, that we have a mission. When we accept Jesus Christ, it's not the end, it's just the beginning. And we can move onward and forward as a church because of what Christ has done. We are a new creation. All things are passed away. Old things are passed away. All things become new. We can rejoice in that beauty of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for each one of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, I just thank you. I praise you for this opportunity. I thank you for this this church and for the, the believers and all those who come out faithfully. I thank you for what you have done on the cross of Calvary. And again, just celebrating Easter that you are, your son is risen. And he is risen indeed. Father, help us to just look at each other. Not as what our past is like, but what Christ has done within each one of us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.